You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Clint Wright. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday's service now. And you can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let there be light. There we go. Hey, I want to share with you a letter that I came across this week. So there's an elderly lady. She was going to visit a campsite with some of her family. And uh, she's pretty old-fashioned, you know, and she didn't want to be crude. And so she's, she's trying to find a way to ask about the bathroom facilities. Is there a toilet in the campground? That's what she wants to know. But she just can't bring herself to write the word toilet in a letter. She just can't do it, okay? So she thinks, okay, what, what can I substitute? And so she comes up with kind of the old phrase, uh, you know, the bathroom commode. I'll, that's what I'll say. Hey, does, does the campground have a bathroom commode? And she starts to write, but ugh, she just can't do it. Even that, she thinks, that's just, that's just too crude. And so I know what I'll do. I'll abbreviate it. Just the BC. I'll ask about the BC. So she writes the letter to the owner of the campground. It, does the campground have a BC? Well, the campground owner, he gets it, and he's not quite as old-fashioned or polite, maybe. So he gets this letter. He has no idea what she means asking about the BC. And so he passes the letter around to other people there, even other people at the campground. Do y'all know what she's asking? I want to help her out. And they look, a lot of people look at it. They have no idea. And finally, one person gets it and speaks up. I know. She's asking about the local Baptist church. That's what BC means, the Baptist church. So this is the campground owner's reply to the lady asking about the BC. Dear Madam, I regret very much the delay in answering your letter, but I now take pleasure in informing you that the BC is located nine miles north of the campsite and is capable of seating 250 people at one time. I admit it is quite a distance away if you are in the habit of going regularly, but no doubt you'll be pleased to know that a great number of people take their lunches along and make a day of it. The last time my wife and I went was six years ago, and it was so crowded we had to stand up the whole time we were there. I would like to say it pains me very much not to be able to go more regularly, but it is surely not for lack of desire on my part. As we grow older, it seems to be more and more of an effort, particularly in cold weather. If you decide to come down to the campground, perhaps I can go with you the first time you go, sit with you, and introduce you to all the nice folks. This is really a very friendly community. Confusion about meaning can lead to some weird situations, can it? Particularly when it comes to church. Enter 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The passage we're going to be looking at today, most theologians will tell you, is one of, if not the most difficult passage to interpret in the New Testament. In fact, you could, and I have, read 20 different commentaries, and no two of them will agree completely on exactly what Paul is saying here. So, before we dive in, I just want to pause and let's talk about how do we approach difficult passages so that we don't recreate a BC situation here like they had at the campground. So there's a couple things we don't want to do. First, we don't want to be dogmatic. 
And so I'm going to tell you what I think Paul is saying, what I think he is teaching, but I say this in all humility. There are other people smarter than me who will disagree with me, and that's totally fine. There are a whole host of orthodox opinions on this. And so this is not the kind of thing we split over. This is not the kind of thing we fight over or we dig our heels in. We just, we can't be dogmatic about it. The other thing we don't do is we don't build an entire theology based on one verse or two. And y'all, there's several places in 1 Corinthians where people have done that. Built a whole theology, a whole church, even a whole denomination off just one or two verses. And it has painful consequences for people. So we don't do that. But here's what we can do. We can let Scripture interpret Scripture. And we're going to do that a lot this morning. And so we can look at other parts of 1 Corinthians in the context that he's speaking in. We can look at other places where Paul writes about a similar topic. Over and over again, Paul cites the Old Testament. So we can go read those passages in the Old Testament that develop these ideas more fully that he's just kind of mentioning in passing. And then finally, let me say this. Just because it's difficult doesn't mean we don't try to apply it to our lives. Men and women, every time we step in here, whatever is in the scriptures, this is God's word for us today. And he preserved it through generations. He engineered you and me to be here, right here today. And so we open our hearts up to it and we seek to apply it to our lives. And I think if we'll hang in there, y'all, there's a lot in here that applies to us. He's starting a, a new section where he's talking about our corporate gatherings, what we do in here together. What makes it a a good gathering or a bad gathering? Does it matter? Why does it matter? These are the kind of issues he's going to start talking about. And y'all, this is so important for us. There was a lie going around in the Corinthian culture back then. And if I'm honest, I think the lie is just as prevalent today. In our corporate gatherings, in churches all over the place. It's a sneaky lie. And the lie is this, that the highest good in worship is my self-expression. Think about it. Nothing nothing makes more sense to us than I got all these churches, I got all these options, and so I go to the one where I like the music style and I like the preaching style and I can dress the way that I want to dress and it really suits me and I fit in perfect. In Corinth, their self-expression looked like hierarchy. Right? And so we've seen over and over again, they do all these things to kind of create this pecking order. And who has the most likes? And who's the wisest? And who has the super secret spiritual knowledge? And so I, the church's role, according to them, was for me to come and express the higher spiritual plane that I'm on. And if that's not edifying for the person next to me, well, they're not as spiritual as I am. That's their fault. The problem with that mentality, men and women, is that it makes church all about me. And church is not all about me, and it is not all about you. Church is all about him. And that's our big idea, I think, from Paul. It's our big idea today. Church is for God expression above self-expression. Church, our corporate gatherings, when we gather together, it is about God expression above self-expression. Paul's going to make this case with two issues. One of them, the first, could not be more controversial. Women wearing head coverings in the church. The second, we'll all agree on. In fact, you'll be shocked that Paul even has to say this stuff out loud. And so, total into the spectrum 
to make the same point. So without further delay, let's dive into the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 2. That's what begins this section. He says, Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, I want you to pay attention to that last phrase, as I delivered them to you. Okay, Paul's getting ready. He's doing the whole thing where you start with a compliment before you really come with what you're really trying to say, you know, the criticism. He's getting ready to correct them. And over and over again in 1 Corinthians, the correction has been, hey, you're kind of continuing what I gave to you, but not the way I gave it to you. Corinth, y'all, was a dumpster fire of syncretism. They're constantly taking partial truth and then mixing it with the Greek philosophy or, or misapplying it and, and leaving out other parts of the scriptures. I like the way one commentator said it. He said, it's not like the Corinthians had one foot in the world and one foot in the church. They had both feet in the world and occasionally will reach over into the church when it suits them. And so Paul, he has this method throughout the book of addressing their syncretism. And what he'll do, we've seen it over and over, he'll quote them back to themselves. He'll say, well, you're saying this, and then he corrects it. He kind of does a course correction on it. We've seen this throughout the book, anywhere between six and ten times, Paul's going to do this in 1 Corinthians. We saw it last chapter, chapter 10. So some of you don't even have to turn the page in your Bible. And he does a thing where he quotes them and he says, all things are lawful for me. That's what they're saying. Hey, Paul, you said we're not under the law. Let the good times roll. Let's party. We can do whatever we want. And Paul then adds his correction. He says, yes, but not everything is beneficial and not everything is edifying for the person next to you. Okay? Here's the challenge. Here's why we have to carry this with humility. In the original text, in the original manuscripts, y'all, there are no quotation marks. There is no punctuation of any kind. There's not even lowercase, uppercase letters or spacing at the end of one sentence to the next one. It's just uniform letters, okay? So any translation, when they put quotation marks, they're they're doing their best to make an interpretation. And so a lot of translations won't have quotation marks in the same place. Okay, done nerding out. I think the key to understanding this passage, y'all, is figuring out where those quotation marks go. Where is Paul quoting them, quoting the Corinthians? And then what part is his correction? And so I'm going to give you, here's my interpretation. Here's how we're going to approach this passage. Here's where I'm going to break it up. So verse 2 and 3, I think that's Paul talking. That's him giving his thoughts. Then verse 4 and 5, those are the Corinthians' thoughts. And then, just like we've seen over and over, Paul corrects it in verse 6. Then verse 7 through 10, that's the Corinthians again speaking And then Paul ends that section with his own thoughts correcting their thinking. Okay? So Paul, Corinthians, Paul, Corinthians, Paul. Okay? I think this makes the most sense when you look at the context, when you let the text speak for itself and look for the the verbal cues and the wording and you examine the whole book and see how the Corinthians were thinking about things and how Paul tends to write about things. So let's keep going. Verse 3. But... I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So, okay, Paul wants them to understand something, a concept. What's the concept Paul is wanting them to understand? 
authority. Headship, that's what headship means. It's authority, it's roles, it's submission. But how are we to understand these concepts? Well, it's interesting because he's talking about church in this section, but he doesn't begin just talking about church. He begins talking about marriage. So he's not saying that every man is the head of every woman. He says in marriage, the husband is the head of the wife. This matches, we can look at other scriptures, Ephesians 5, what he talks about, the the example of marriage. He's saying that teaches us something. But, y'all, the emphasis is not actually on marriage. The emphasis is not actually on anything human. In Greek writing, whenever you had a list of things, whatever came last is the most important and it defines how we should think about everything that came before it. So look, look at the end of verse 3. What is the last pair in the list? It's Christ and God. Christ and God is the most important and defines our relationship. So Paul is saying here, this, right up here, this is our model for authority and submission. Can we put that diagram back up, Chris? So this is a diagram that helps us understand the Trinity, who God is in himself. And what do we see in the Trinity? There's differentiation. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons in their own right. And yet, what else do we see? Total equality. Totally equal worth. Jesus is fully and equally God. Amen? Absolutely. You know what else we see in the Trinity? We see joyful submission and loving authority. So the first part of 1 Corinthians is all about the cross. Paul says it is, it is the wisdom and the power of God. It is the height of God's wisdom in the cross. What do we see? What interaction do we see between the Trinity and the cross? Well, we see Jesus walking forward in joyful submission. Lord, not, not my will but yours be done. For the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross, the Bible says. What do we see from the Father? We see him raising Jesus from the dead. We see, as Philippians 2 says it, exalting him and giving him the name that is above every name. What Paul is trying to help us understand to start this off is that headship, authority, submission, y'all, it precedes time. It goes all the way back to eternity past and will continue in eternity future because it is part of the nature of God himself. It is Trinitarian. Now, headship, authority, submission, we hate those words. And often I think we hate those words because we let the world define them and then we bring their definition into the church. And I can't think of a better service we can do for our culture and the world that we, in, or we are in than to recapture a Trinitarian definition of these ideas and these relationships and put them on display of joy, joyful submission and loving authority. And that is what Paul is asking us to do right here. He is asking us to come together, not for self, selfish expression, but for God expression. He is saying worship is meant to display this to a watching world. So this is so important, and I want to be sure and say this out loud. The Trinity shows us roles, authority, submission. Listen, they have nothing, nothing to do with value and worth. Not a thing. 
And we, we kind of innately understand this in, in other roles in our world. So, for example, we have police officers in our church, right? And so, on Sunday mornings and things around the church, they're just like everyone else under the authority of the elders for church matters. Yet, on a Tuesday, if I'm speeding up 110 and I see the blue lights in my rear view, guess what? Now I'm under his authority, right? And no one, no one says, well, no, 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 it's one or the other. One person's got to be under the other person's authority at all times. And no one makes value and worth statements based on that, do they? And yet, we have to acknowledge the sad reality in church. Many have used this passage to put unjust burdens and lesser value on others. And so I just want to say as clear as I can, any, any female or male for that matter, listen, if you've ever been made to feel less than in church, that should not have happened. And that is a misinterpretation. That does not reflect the Trinity and who God is. A woman is not less than any more than Jesus is less than. That's what Paul's saying. It's okay, now, that was Paul. Now I think we get to the part where Paul is quoting the Corinthians and how they were thinking about things. Verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Okay, so let me just take a minute and explain why I think this makes way more sense coming from the Corinthians than from Paul. So what's his instruction to men? Don't cover your head in church, right? Paul was a Jew. What's the practice among Jewish men? to cover their heads in worship. Plus, we know it didn't come from any other scripture. So there's no other scripture, New Testament or Old Testament, that teaches this practice. In a minute, we're going to find out no other churches at the time are practicing this. He's saying, y'all are on your own and doing this. So the question is, okay, where does this idea come from? I think most likely what makes most sense is it's coming from the local synchronistic culture that they're importing into the church. Let's look at the instruction to women. So he says, a woman dishonors God when they don't cover their heads. You'll find nothing in your Bible, not a word that says a woman cannot pray without a head covering. Now, what was a reality back then, culturally, pretty much any Roman culture, that women, they would cover their heads kind of like a wedding ring. And so married women in public would cover their heads, and that was the signal that they were married just like a wedding ring. And just like this is a symbol, it communicates something, the removal of it can communicate something, right? And so if someone's in church and keeps taking their head covering off, it would be a little bit like me showing up every Sunday with a shirt that says single ready to mingle. (laughs) I'm making some decisions there, aren't I? There's something going on there and you're going to ask me about it. So that's what they're trying to avoid But look at the extreme that they're taking it to. They say it's just like if this woman had shaved her head. I do not think Paul would have ever equated those two. They have just said that she has become the most shamed and humiliated woman in our culture. The practice was when a a woman was caught in the most scandalous activity against her will, they would shave her head, they would send her out into the public square where she could be shamed, mocked, beaten, and at times even killed. 
It was the most degrading thing you could do to a woman back then. So read that in the lack of other scripture. Does Paul really teach that praying without a head covering is equivalent to that? I think it is more likely and it makes more sense that it's coming from the Corinthian cultures who have a habit of importing Greek philosophies for the purpose of creating hierarchies. Creating hierarchies where I can be above somebody else. That's where it makes the most sense as its source. And so the next verse, verse 6, would be Paul's response to their absurdity. And y'all, it's a sarcastic, satirical response. He says, verse 6, For if a wife, you hear that, that transition word, for, if a wife will not cover her head, then she just, should just cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Paul here, he's using this brilliant rhetorical device where you say out loud the logical conclusion of someone else's bad idea. He's done this before. So go read Galatians 5.12. I'll let you read that on your own. He does the same thing. He's, it's the equivalent of him saying, really, guys? Because she prays without her head uncovered, you're going to shave her head? Well, if that's the case, let's just go around shaving everyone's head. And he's anticipating them saying, Paul, that would be overkill. That would be ridiculous. And of course, you see, that's the point. Exactly. So back in verse 7, next we get, he's going back to the Corinthian theology. He says, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Which that last phrase, by the way, because of the angels, no one knows what it means. So let's, let's let Scripture interpret Scripture here, okay? What's he, he's talking about, he's alluding to creation. And we all know that there was an order of creation. So what does Genesis actually say about some of these concepts? He pulls out the concept of image, of glory, of purpose. We all, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, clearly says male and female were created in the image of God. See, they're, they're twisting the facts to create hierarchies. Say, no, only man was created in the image of God, not woman. And so here's our hierarchy, God. And then we find out they have angels, then man, then woman. We've got our hierarchy here. And then they say this thing, that woman is the glory of man. Paul, y'all, Paul would have never taught this. Remember, Paul was one of the most respected rabbis of his time. This idea, this concept of glory in Jewish theology was huge, huge. No one to a good Jew, no one is worthy of glory outside of God himself. That's the whole concept throughout the Old Testament. In fact, Moses, we... He had to turn his back and hide from God's glory because he would have been destroyed by it. And so in Paul's theology to say anyone would receive glory other than God is pure idolatry. You're essentially saying that woman was created to worship man. And that's not taught anywhere in the Bible. That's not what Genesis teaches. No good Jew like Paul would have taught it. What about verse 9 though? Okay, so then they say, well... But woman was created for man. You remember Paul. 
created Adam, and then out of Adam's side, and was even, and she's called his helper, right? You will never find another scripture that says, woman is created for man. The testimony of the Bible from cover to cover is that all of us, all humans were created for God, for his purpose and for glory, his glory, just as all humans are made in his image. So let's talk about Eve, though, being the helper. Yes, the Bible does say that. You know what that word helper means? That word helper helper also means deliverer. You know who's also called a helper? Two members of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit and God himself. It's a great verse. There's many verses, but one I really like. Deuteronomy 33, 29. says, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help. There's that word. The shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. The woman... Being the helper, watch it. You see what's happening here? It doesn't make her inferior to man or an offshoot of man or a model of man. It gives her an ability of God expression. It gives her by her design and her differentiation a way to put God on display. It ties her closer to God, not farther from him. Do you see that? What Genesis actually teaches when we let Scripture interpret Scripture is not we got God, then we got man, then we got woman. It clearly teaches we have God, and then we have man and woman, distinct yet equal. Both made for him, both made in his image, and both made to worship him for his glory. That's the testimony of the Old Testament. Distinct but equal. Are you starting to see that? Look, how we gather in the church and how we relate to one another is so much bigger than us. It's so much bigger than my self-expression. It can put God on display. It's about God expression. So Paul, once again, he corrects their theology. Verse 11. Nevertheless, in the Lord. That's so Paul. In Christ, in the Lord. Woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does nature itself, does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, so let's break this passage down. The, The strongest evidence I know of how I'm breaking up the passage is that first word of verse 11, nevertheless. In the Greek, it is the strongest contrast you can have. It is the verbal equivalent of Paul slamming the table and saying, no. Stop. And so what comes after, y'all? Either Paul is contradicting himself, which wouldn't make a lot of sense, or he's contradicting the Corinthians' thought, which I think makes way more sense. And his whole message is, y'all, we're not independent of each other. He maintains the distinctions between male and female, but he highlights our interdependence. There are roles. There are functions. There is authority, yes, but there is no hierarchy. There are no second-class citizens in the church. 
It's, this matches, I think this is from Paul, because it matches his teaching in chapter 7. He was talking about marriage, and he said, both the husband and the wife have authority over each other's bodies. He says, in the same way, you are interdependent on one another. And you know, verse 12 is brilliant. It is brilliant. He says, yes, the first man came from a woman, but every other man after that has come from women. I think I said that opposite. The first woman came from a man. That is true. But every other man after that came from a woman. So for keeping score, okay, man won. Women, billions. Okay, they're winning. And that's what Genesis 4 says. Again, we can let Scripture interpret Scripture. If they had just turned the page in their Bibles, they would have read Genesis 4. When Eve has her first child, she says, Behold, with the help of the Lord, I have created a man. But they're just picking out one part and leaving it. But the whole point, where he ends verse 12, the whole point of verse 12 is, we aren't keeping score, guys. We're not. Because it's all from the Lord. Every single bit of it. So we aren't here for self-expression and scorekeeping. We are here for God expression because it's all from him. And then in verse 13, I love because he gets really sarcastic. But I want you to notice something. Notice something. He has changed some of the verbiage that they're using. So when the Corinthians are talking, they're talking about women praying and prophesying. In verse 13, though, he takes out prophesying. He's just saying, he's just talking about praying. Why? Well, I think that matches his teaching in Titus, in 1 Timothy, that the role of elder whose main function is the teaching and the guarding of doctrine, according to Paul, that role is reserved for men. And that's completely consistent with Paul's teaching. And so, y'all, this text, it is a complementarian text. It is not an egalitarian text. You would have to do so many gymnastics to make it egalitarian. He's maintaining those distinctions. He's staying consistent in all of his teachings. But then he asks kind of a sarcastic rhetorical question. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? And I know you read that in your Bible and you're like, I feel like I have to say no. But just, okay, imagine we're not in church. You're not reading the Bible. It's a Tuesday. You're at work. Somebody walks up to you and says, hey, is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? What would you say? Of course it is. Of course, it's totally fine. Please pray whenever you can. Pray at all times. Pray without ceasing. Absolutely. So let me say unequivocally today, throughout the his- most of the history of the church, throughout the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, it had been the same answer. Of course a woman can pray with her head uncovered. You can search your whole Bible. You will not find that restriction anywhere. At most, it became a tradition in Jewish culture, as in most cultures, for a married woman to cover her head in public, but that had nothing to do with her prayer life. And y'all, verse 14 is a joke. It's a joke. He says, does not nature teach you that it is disgraceful for a man to have long hair? Those words are written by a man with long hair. Go read Acts 18. We get this seemingly random detail that after being in Corinth for 18 months, Paul made a haircut appointment. 
because he had taken a Nazarite vow and that vow was over, which means for at least, at minimum, a year and a half while he was in Corinth, Paul never cut his hair. Now, we're also told he was bald on top of his head, so that must have been quite a look, okay? I don't recommend repeating that. So when he's asking it, that's like me up here saying, hey, judge for yourself. Is it appropriate for a chubby guy with a beard to preach? Don't answer that out loud, okay? I think that was my family that said no. <laughs> it's a joke. You say, I can't. of course. Of course, the long-haired guy's asking us if a guy can have long hair. And then, of course, we can let Scripture interpret Scripture. We know John the Baptist had long hair. We know uh, Samson had long hair. And I know a lot of you grown men in here, you wish you'd have had this information, you know, when you were your teenager and your dad was telling you you couldn't grow your hair long. Sorry, your time passed. What are you going to do? And then in verse 16, y'all, he puts the nail in the coffin and he shuts this whole thing down. He says, you are alone in your contentiousness. You're on an island Nobody else is doing this. No other churches are doing what you're doing. And again, this fits the context, right? We've had several examples of this. So they're creating hierarchies, we learned, based on who baptized them. Well, you know, Apollos, he baptized me. Uh, I was just baptized by that long-haired hippie Paul. We know that they're having marriages where people are abstaining from normal marital relations. We know that apparently there's some people in the church who are being everyone's food police and policing what people should eat. None of these other issues does Paul have to address in any of the other churches. They don't show up in any other epistle. We know that this fits what the Corinthians are doing. And so he tells them, you are being contentious. That word means stubborn, independent, always arguing, unwilling to listen, insisting on my own self-expression, at the expense of others. It's a great verse, Ezekiel 3, 7, where he uses this same phrase for contentious. He says, But the house of Israel will not be willing to listen to you, for they are not willing to listen to me, because all the house of Israel have a hard forehead and a stubborn heart. Isn't that a great phrase? A hard forehead. That tells you everything you need to know. Paul here, he's identifying their core issue. That they are obsessed with their own self-expression, with doing things their way, with doing what makes them feel the most alive and wise and spiritual. But he's saying it's not more spiritual, it is hard-foreheaded. That's what it is. It expresses their stubborn hearts more than it expresses the nature of God. And you know, it's the same with us. Listen, if you come to church with self-expression as your highest good, you will become contentious. And we've seen it over and over. And then one of two things will happen. Either the church will destroy your contentiousness or your contentiousness will destroy the church. And unfortunately, we've seen that over and over, haven't we? Because you see, when the two cannot coexist together any more than contentiousness can exist within the Trinity itself. And that's our model. He closes the section by, by showing the, the incompatibility of our gatherings and our own contentious self-expression every time we take the Lord's Supper. 
That's what Paul addresses next, verse 17. He says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So in communion, y'all, they are dividing over their own appetites. And this time, the division in between man and woman, it is between rich and poor. So back then, the custom was communion was BYOB. You bring your own food and drink to communion. So what would happen was the rich would bring these huge feasts and the poor would have nothing. Plus the poor, they had to work all day, not the rich. So the rich would get there early, get the party started early. And by the time the poor showed up, they were, most of them were drunk and there was nothing left. Now, man, you hear that and it's obvious, isn't it? Like, that's not how things should be. That's not how we should be doing church. But I'm here to tell you the Corinthian version of communion, y'all, it was the epitome of self-expression. The rich were saying, this is great for me. I love this. I have so much fun. I get to eat and drink and be merry. It's wonderful for me. I love it. But it is totally void of God expression. There's, there was nothing in how they celebrated that modeled the joyful submission and loving authority of the Trinity. So Paul says, let's take a step back. Paul reminds them why they gather and why they celebrate the Lord's Supper. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Men and women, here it is, right here. Jesus was God's clearest form of self-expression. And what Jesus did on this earth was not create some hierarchy with him at the top. He put himself at the very bottom. Paul's going to go on to say in 2 Corinthians, Though he was rich, he made himself poor for us. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we, we remember that he came to break his body for us and to shed his blood for us. And so it's worth asking, how can we say our highest good in worship is self-expression when Jesus' highest good was sacrifice? How can we be contentious when we follow a Jesus who generously gave all of himself for us? So when we gather men and women, we don't proclaim ourselves. We proclaim Jesus, he says, until he comes again. We come to the table for God expression over self-expression. And you know, there's countless ways that we can apply this to our lives, but we're running low on time, so I'm going to have to leave that between you and the Lord this week. But I would just ask you one question, one thing to ponder this week. 
If church for me was about God expression over self-expression, what would that make church look like? I invite you to ponder that this week, but for now, let's close by celebrating together the sacrifice, love, and generosity of our God by taking the Lord's Supper together. One of our elders, Steve, is going to lead us, so I'm going to invite you, Steve, to come on up. Thank you for leading us in the Lord's Supper together. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. If you have questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.